the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, be with us today. May your word take root in our hearts. That we will not sin against you. You are the vine. We are the branches. Father, you are the vine dresser. And I pray you would help us today. We need you. We need you today, Lord, to preach. We need you today to teach. We need you today to listen to your word. For only you can open up the eyes and ears of those who need to see and hear your word. And for your uh, beloved saints, Lord, we pray that you would encourage their hearts. And help us, Lord, to be alert and ready. You've called us to be ready for you will come like a thief in the night and so lord help us to be ready today to listen to what you have to say we ask and beg that you would help us in jesus name amen amen, amen. a disciple of jesus christ needs to guard their faith and we need the help of god for the commands we are called to obey I tell people we need God's help to serve him. We need God's help to pray. We need God's help to worship. In our text, what does it mean, though, to add or increase our faith? Faith is reliance upon and trusting God. And by adding, I mean adding to something already present. To add to our already trust in God to increase our faith means... We need more than what we already have when it comes to trusting in God. One lectionary commentary said this. Implicitly, according to the text, Jesus says faith is not something which needs to increase. It simply needs to exist. So the issue in our text may differ from the amount of faith and maybe it's talking about a misplaced faith or a lack of understanding of what faith is. And Jesus can do. So is the request made here in our text legitimate? We need to trust in God. And reliance and trust in God should be continually growing in the life of the Christian. But it may not matter how much faith one has. As it is what we have already like we struggle. We struggle with our faith. Trusting in God already. There might be many things in our lives that we haven't trusted the Lord with. This is a different issue than how much faith we have. The problem may be misplaced faith, not the amount of faith one has. So in the Hebrew scriptures, the verb amen, faith, usually means to be true. And it comes from the root word solid or firm. In the New Testament, faith, pistis or pestuin in the, in the Greek, can be a noun and a verb that can mean believing or trusting, but usually faith is related to trusting God when needing provision. Faith is especially referenced in areas that are most difficult in life. So it's more about the issues of life regarding an amount of faith. You know what? Faith, even if it seems insignificant, is most important when placed in God. Our trust in God and our reliance upon God is done because of grace and because he is worth our trust and reliance. And our trust in God for the issues in our lives is contingent on whether we continue to trust and rely on him. So in our passage, Jesus tells his disciples to pay attention to themselves because faith in times of difficulty where someone sins against them 
can challenge their trust and reliance on God to do what God has called them to do. Jesus tells them that they should not be like those who deceive others into sin, which may have been a reference to the Pharisees, I believe it was, and that they should rebuke them when they sin. Something greatly missing in many churches today, because we want to be nice to everybody. Rather than being nice, we need to be loving. There's a difference. The fear of offending someone and leaving them to their sin is not loving. It's loving to tell someone they're in trouble with God because of their sin. In our culture, it seems as if, you know, if you say something truthful, you're not being loving. But the Bible says otherwise. To be loving, you have to share the truth. If the house is on fire and that person's in the house burning, to tell them that there's a fire in the house is the loving thing to do. And saints, the world is on fire. We live, it's a fallen world. So to tell someone of the hope of Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected is a loving thing to do. So stop fronting like it's okay. It's not. Our culture is saying, hey, don't, it, keep to your own business. But it's, it's the business of the kingdom to share the gospel. If they repent, they will be forgiven. Again, this is what the Pharisees and scribes should have done, but didn't do themselves. It takes faith to love someone. Even for the Christian, it could be challenging to love as God has loved us. It takes genuine faith, being born of God, to avoid deceiving others. And steadfast faith to get the help we need to love others. Can I get an amen on that? If we call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, then we will need help not only to trust and rely upon God for those things in our lives that are challenging, but we also need his help to obey his commands. So for our outline for today, saints, point number one, the estimation in verses one and two. The exhortation, verses 3 and 4, that's our second point. The third point, the enablement, verses 5 and 6. So the estimation, the exhortation, the enablement. Point number one, the estimation in verses 1 and 2. We often read in verse 1 what Jesus said to his disciples, and we assume he's talking about the 12, but he's actually talking to various disciples. There's not just to the 12. Many disciples follow Jesus. This is further proven later in Luke, well, the writer of this gospel. He points out the apostles in verse 5 of our text. We'll talk about that later. But here, Jesus is speaking to those who followed him and claimed to be those who listened and applied to what he was teaching. So at this point, Jesus was still on his way to Jerusalem. We see this in Luke 17, 11. Remember, he's, he's going from the northern part of Galilee down, traveling to Jerusalem where he would die. And he had already taught many things that challenged Pharisees and scribes. All the way from Luke 15, we could see that. And so the pattern we have seen in this situation is that when addressing his disciples, he taught them what not to do. The parable of the dishonest manager was given so that they will be shrewd as believers. Not like the Pharisees and scribes who squandered their wisdom. The Lazarus and the rich man's story, the parable was told to avoid being like the rich man who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And in our text, it seems Jesus is repeating the same thing by telling them what not to do. It's one thing to keep telling you what God has to say. There's a lot of things that God said not to do as well. And those are the areas where we struggle, don't we? He kept telling them that they should not be the ones through whom temptations come. Verse 1, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Jesus begins with telling them that temptations are sure to come. The NASB translated verse 1 more clearly where it says, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It's inevitable. And by temptations here, it means a device for catching someone alive. It's a trap, an action or circumstance that leads one to act contrary to a proper course of action or set of beliefs. It is enticement to apostasy or to a false belief in God. It is that which causes offense and revulsion and results in opposition, disapproval, or hostility. So these things, Jesus says, are inevitable. Meaning that it is not if it comes, it's it will come when it comes. The Christian will face devices that are set to catch them. The Christian will face traps. The Christian will face circumstances that attempt to lead them contrary to God's will. The Christian will face enticement to apostasy or to a false belief in God. The Christian will face offenses and opposition, disapproval and hostility. This is inevitable for us. This will come. In Matthew 18, 7, Jesus tells us where they come from. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe to the world. For it is necessary that temptations come. But then he also adds, like in our text, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So temptations to sin are sure to come, and they come from the world. That's why 1 John tells us not to love the world or the things of it. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Jesus, in Matthew 18, 7, says this, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, but there is another woe. Woe to the one through whom they come. Now, a woe is an exclamation of judgment upon God's enemies. It was also an admission of one's misfortune. Someone would say, woe is me. You ever been there? Woe is me for whatever is happening to me. Trouble has come upon me. It feels as if judgment is on me. That's what woe means. In the ministry of Jesus, it was an expression of sadness over those who failed to recognize the true misery of their condition. And he would use it as an exclamation of judgment on others, as in our text. So, woe to the one through whom temptations come. One translation says it this way, but woe to the person who sets them. Who sets them. The traps. The deception. Woe to them. Jesus wanted his disciples to know and remember that the inevitable reality of temptation and how it would come, would come to them. 
But also he wanted them to know the truth of what God thinks when one is setting up temptations for others. This is speaking of someone who goes out and uses devices and traps to lead one to act contrary to faith and trust in God. There are people out there to deceive you. There are people out there setting up traps for you. There are people out there wanting to lure you out of the fold who say church isn't essential to your Christian walk, who say you should not be baptized, who say Jesus isn't God, who deny the triune God, who say that church stuff is, you know, nah, I'm good with that. I might go once or twice a year. If you cut off a limb from a body, what happens to it? Left on the floor, it rots and dies. You cannot be cut off from the body and survive. This here is speaking of those who entice for apostasy. They are out to influence you to a false belief in God. For example, as we have seen in a small group studies in 1 John, some sought to deceive Christians in the church with Gnosticism. Without getting too deep into this uh, doctrine, those who held to this form in the time of John the Apostle believed that Jesus could not have come in the flesh because the spiritual could never join with the material because the material was inherently evil. And so the problem is that it would mean that Jesus could not have come in the flesh. This was a threat to the Christian faith. So much so that John, when writing 1 John, began with this strong introduction. And let me... I can't tell you how important this is. The first four verses of 1 John, turn there with me. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That's why y'all got to come to the small groups. It's really important to chop it up together. Starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So as an example, one who comes to deceive with this teaching or anything that goes contrary to what God commands and what Holy Scripture teaches, Jesus says in verse two, listen, it would in our text, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Here. Jesus estimates that it will be better for those through whom temptations come to hang a millstone around their necks and thrown into the sea than to cause others to sin. I did some homework because I'm not a farmer. I'm a city boy. You know what I'm saying? And some of y'all might know what a millstone is. Some of y'all country heads out there. You know what I'm saying? I did some research because I had to. It's very foreign to me. It might be foreign to you because we're talking about first and second century farmers. Millstones were used for grinding grain in the ancient Middle East. 
Millstones were common tools of the daily life of ordinary people. It was something common back then. And I learned that there were different sizes. One was about 16 inches, a stone, a round stone that was used. Another was about 24 inches, again, to do the same thing, to grind grain. And then there was another one that was about five feet. Can you imagine five feet stone around your neck? I believe Jesus used that to say that that was the instrument by which they should tie themselves for deceiving little ones to sin. Jesus spoke to those who are tempted as little ones. Little ones here means those who are small in stature. It can mean children. This speaks of those who belong to him. This is the description of believers. It's what First John, again, he keeps calling the church little children. It's, a, it's, it's an aspect of Jesus that we see that he's being pastoral. He's loving on his people. My little children, he says. What exactly does Jesus mean when saying that they are those who cause little ones to sin? Another word for sin here can mean, actually the word in the Greek means scandalizo, where we get the word scandal. It speaks of someone who has scandalized others, who cause others to stumble. It, it causes an action that excites feelings of repugnance and disgust because of the actions that caused others to stumble morally or fall away. People are out to scandalize you, to cause a scandal, to talk about you, to throw your name out there as if you're a scandal. In context, I would argue that Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Don't be like the Pharisees and scribes, I believe he's saying, who were very scandalous. Don't be like those who scandalize people, who deceive others with sin and lead people away from Christ. Woe to them, Jesus says. He describes this to his disciples, but he begins to prescribe something right after. Now, he, he gave a description. Now he's going to give a prescription to us. In verse uh, 3 and 4, the exhortation, our second point, where it says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Yes. Pay attention to yourselves, he says. Jesus is telling them to apply to their minds. Think this way of yourselves. Think about yourselves this way, he says. Because they are not to be like the Pharisees and scribes who sought to deceive others. They should pay attention to themselves because being like them is a default position. It's what we are. Which means that it comes naturally to us to either be deceived or to be the ones deceiving. Now, because this is the case with us naturally, if not for God's grace, we will treat others who fall short of self-righteousness as they did. It's real easy to be a Pharisee. I know we read that and be like, man, they're cold hearted. Look at how they treated people with contempt. No, that's us apart from grace. We're all somewhat self-righteous. It's real easy to criticize somebody else. And then when the critique falls on y'all and me, we get defensive. Other people see it sometimes. You know what? We don't see it ourselves. 
And that's why accountability is crucial. That's why a mentor in your life is important. To have a Paul in your life. To say, yo, you don't look good today, brother. Nah, the way you're treating your wife, nope. The way you're living your life, nah, that ain't happening. You need to repent, brother. We need that. Because we can walk around acting self-righteous like everything is a-okay. And you know what? We need to look in the mirror of God's word sometimes. And it takes a brother sometimes to point that out in us so that we can repent properly. Some of y'all men are quiet today. (laughs) If we pay attention to ourselves in such a way that we keep in mind ourselves in light of Christ, we will treat those who sin and repent redemptively. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Jesus is now prescribing to them what to do with those who sin. He's speaking of not, not of a natural blood-borne brother, but of a brother in faith. If they sin, meaning if they miss the mark, if they are in error or guilty of wrong, yes, rebuke them. What does it mean to rebuke someone when they are in sin? It technically here means to assess a penalty and admonish them. Assess properly and admonish. It means to give a solemn warning to someone. I believe this has continued to be taught with the apostles. I think Galatians 6, where Paul talked to the, church in, the churches in Galatia, he, they were already tripping because he bought into a workspace gospel. He's correcting them. So... Here's the problem. When you don't have sound teaching, and I, I'm not saying I'm a sound teacher or anything like we're, we're trying to be faithful. I would say we're trying to, in our attempt to be faithful, we should be producing mercy. Right. A proper view of God produces mercy. An improper view of God or an incorrect one produces legalism. It will produce legalism, self-righteousness, and dependency upon you to do what God had already done in Christ. How do you think that culture will treat people who fall short? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Los, you're too soft on people when they sin. No, read Galatians chapter 6. Let's read that together. Go to Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Then he says, check it, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Don't point out somebody else's burden. Bear with it. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Watch it. Yes, admonish and give warning to those who sin, but do it with the spirit of gentleness, lest you be tempted. Keep watch on yourself. Pay attention to yourselves. You know why? Because it's easy to allow others to sin with no accountability. You need to rebuke a brother when they are in sin. Yes, hold them accountable, but do it with the spirit of gentleness. Be careful with somebody's soul. Especially when they're caught in sin. Oh, you know, it's easy to take something personal that somebody did. 
oh yeah, you, you haven't been honest with me. Who do you think, I've been there. I got out of that culture, that abusive culture where a pastor would personalize someone's sin. You sinned against me. What about their sin against God? Yeah. Worry about that first and do it with gentleness. You know why? Because God has been gracious to us. Don't be like the Pharisees who treated others with contempt as they did, as we see in Luke 18. Don't do it when around your families. We need to do what Paul told the church to do at Corinth, to do, to do it when dealing with unbelievers. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 5.12, for what I have to do with judging outsiders, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes, hold each other accountable. But you know, uh, around the table, uh, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, whenever your families get together, it's not, you're, you're not called to be a Christian police. To go around and tell people about, no, if they're outsiders, you know what? The Bible commands you not to judge them for they're already judged. It's not my business to go around and point people sin out. It's my business to be about the kingdom, a representative, an ambassador. We are not to judge outsiders. We are to rebuke those in the household of God with love and truth to see them come to repentance. Now, by repentance, it means to change one's mind and to turn to God. And to forgive them means to release them from the guilt of sin that they have repented of. Especially when it's a sin done to you. You know what? That's very hard to do, isn't it? This exhortation in our text is not easy. Applying your mind to this way of thinking is not easy. Keeping watch over yourself because... It is easy to do what the Pharisees and scribes did to others. They treated others with contempt. A sermon that we're going to preach at the end of January next year will be on the Pharisee and tax collector. There, Jesus gives a detailed description of what not to do with when someone repents. Turn with me to Luke 18, 9 through 12. A little heads up to what's coming in January. In verse 9 of Luke 18, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get tithes of all that I get. Mm -mm -mm. Oh, look at what I'm doing. I'm not like them. The Pharisee thanked God that he was not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. But check out what the tax collector says in verse 13 of Luke 18. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If one repents, forgive. Release them from feeling guilty over that which Christ has already forgiven, especially when it's done to you. See, at first, Jesus began to prescribe to them 
what to do with those who sin, and now he prescribes to them what to do when the sin is towards them. Verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, consider forgiving him? If you feel like it, no, you must forgive. You must forgive. Now, in context of Judaism, demonstrating a forgiving spirit was traditionally accomplished by forgiving someone three times. It was understood culturally. Peter, though, in Matthew 18, after talking about how to handle someone who repents or doesn't repent, church discipline, asked Jesus about forgiving seven times, not three. So Peter was being actually extra in his question. But Jesus transcended not just the cultural expectation of three times. He went on to say not even seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, he was urging forgiveness without record keeping. In the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, the servant was burdened with an astronomical debt to his king. I found out that it was equivalent to $2.5 billion. Yet the servant who was forgiven $2.5 billion couldn't forgive someone of $4,000. How hard would it be if someone sinned against you seven times in a day if you remembered the outstanding debt forgiven you? Unforgiveness is your problem. It's my problem. The Christian has to forgive. And what if they turn to you seven times saying, I repent? Should you forgive them? You know what Jesus says in our text? You must. This would be difficult, wouldn't it? The difficulty comes because there is a real hurt. There are things that are said to you, have been done to you, that shouldn't have been said and done to you. But if you are Christian, we are saying that God has forgiven us of a debt we could never afford to pay. That is the truth about the Christian life. God has forgiven us. So how can we withhold forgiveness from anybody else? Yet this being the truth, it can be challenging, so we need God's help. And you know what, our last point, this is what the disciples responded to, the enablement. Our last point in closing, verses 5 and 6, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Notice that Luke points out the apostles as the ones among the disciples who asked Jesus to increase their faith. This is specifically speaking about the twelve. So what exactly are they asking for in their petition to increase their faith? Well, faith is reliance upon and trusting God. And by adding, I mean to something already present, to add to our already trust in God, to increase our faith means we need more than what we already have when it comes to trusting in God. So the apostles are asking most likely because this has been a very difficult time in all of what Jesus was teaching. Remember, he told them to be shrewd and faithful in the world. He warned about feasting and celebrating in this life only. 
He also warned about temptations and how they are inevitable. Now he commands them to forgive someone even if they sin against them seven times in a day. That's not how you keep people in church. Man, no. Thank God for John chapter 6. Where a church planning organization would have said, hey, brother, you're failing in ministry. Many disciples left. No, that was a victory. God was cleaning up. They are saying, Lord, help our reliance and trust in you when someone does this. Enable us to do what you command us to do by adding to our trust and reliance upon you. You know what? During the holidays, I know that this could be very difficult. To have family members that said things to you that shouldn't have been said to you. To be around the table around someone who just did you dirty. But if you are a Christian here today and you have not released them from that, that's your issue, not theirs. Do you remember the great debt forgiven you? You know what? The scriptures have examples already of forgiving. Abraham, known as the father of faith, exemplified strong faith in the midst of a dispute between Lot's herdsmen and his own. You know what? Abraham chose not to engage in quarrels, but instead peacefully allowed Lot to make a choice. He said, you know what? No beef here. You pick and God will give me what I need. Joseph, characterized by his faith, pardoned his brothers who sold him into slavery. In the face of criticism from Miriam and Aaron, Moses refrained from retaliation. And you know what? Humbly placed his trust in God. And while urged by those in his command to kill the sleeping Saul, David chose to spare his life, demonstrating trust in God. He even went as far as to say, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. He even pleaded to Saul and shared his love to him while he was seeking out to kill him. David has something. I want some of that something. I need that something this season for people acting up. People saying stuff. Yeah, amen. People be acting. And you know what? I'm one of those people acting up, too. So I'm hoping that my wife and others that love me here at the church can apply that very same principle to me. We all need to embody this in our walk. We are all difficult. And if you don't think you're difficult, then you're probably the most difficult. (laughs) I believe, saints, according to how Jesus responded, that it's not about the quantity of faith or how much faith you have. It's about where you place your faith. Even if it's small, small faith in the Lord is great faith. Faith is no good unless placed in God. Notice what they are doing. They are asking the Lord Jesus for faith. Though the request may need correction, I believe they did ask the right person. The disciples are asking in terms of more faith, but Jesus turns to having faith, even if it is small in God. Verse six. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
<laughs> it is often said that what we need is faith. Many in the Word of Faith movement have made faith a debit and credit card. You, you got to swipe and tap, and you're going to deduct blessing. That's not how this works. God is not a Mac machine. He's not a bank. They say all you got to do is swipe or tap your card and you can get what you want. You would think that Jesus applauds the desire for an increased faith, but you know what he's doing here? He's correcting that. He is saying that even if it is as small as a mustard seed, something miraculous can happen. I know some might be asking about Luke 12, 28, where it says, but if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? And then he says, oh, you of little faith. Faith like a mustard seed, small faith is seen as great, but little faith throughout the Gospels is seen as a sign of doubt. In Matthew 14, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith. Then he says, why did you doubt? Little faith is doubting. Little faith is meant to communicate doubt, but small faith, when placed in God, can do great things. One of those miracles being that forgiveness is given to those who sin against us. This is a miracle, which mirrors the greatest miracle, God forgiving us. See, Jesus uses figurative language to say that faith, reliance, and trust in God, as small as a mustard seed, can do amazing things. This tree actually specifically had deep roots. It would have been very difficult to uproot it. But small faith would make it no big deal. So it is when faith, when placed in God, in times of being sinned against, will give freedom from any pain or offense that has been done to you. You don't have to live in unforgiveness. You don't have to live replaying the tapes of offense. You can have a heart free. One expository outline said this, that forgiveness should be a habit, not a battle. Forgiveness should be a habit, not a battle. And they continue to say, you would expect the disciples to say, increase our love. But forgiveness comes from faith in God's word. The confidence that God will work out the best for everyone involved so long as we do what he wants us to do. Sometimes it is painful to forgive someone who has sinned against us. But we must obey God's word by faith and believe, Romans 8, 28, that all things will work together for the good of those in Christ. If our faith is like the seed alive and growing, nothing will be impossible. You can forgive because you have been forgiven. Your faith is as only good as you place it in. Even if you have small faith, when placed in God, becomes so powerful that it will enable you to forgive someone, even if they sin against you seven times in the day. Some of us struggle with one offense for the whole month. Imagine that offense increased daily seven times. Seven times 70. Lord, increase our faith. 
Help us to place our faith in you, especially in this season where family could be an issue. Help us to place our faith in you. Give me peace, Lord, to love those that are hard to love. I know I've been hard to love, Lord. Help me to love like you. As, the, as disciples of Jesus Christ, you know what? We need help trusting God for the commands he calls us to obey. And if you are sinned against seven times in a day and he turned to you seven times saying, I repent, listen, you have to forgive. Jesus says you must. That's exactly when he hung on that cross and died for our sin. What did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is finished. It is complete. He casted your sin as far as the east is from the west. To the sea of forgetfulness. When we go before God as believers in Jesus Christ, he's not going to say, I, look at what you did. You don't deserve to be here. No, he's going to look at Jesus and say, you deserve to be here. Come in. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Because of what Christ has done. Remember that. When someone's difficult, look to the cross when someone's difficult. Look to the cross when there's a fence. Look to the cross when someone gets in the deepest part of your nerve. Amen. I need help with that. It's real easy to put people away. I'm not going to deal with them. They just they keep doing what they do. No, keep forgiving them. Keep forgiving. Keep loving. Even if it means being wounded. There'll be seasons where God is putting someone in your life that wounds you, that needs you. Help us. We need the cross. We need Jesus to increase our faith in this season. If we are sinned against seven times, let us forgive nonetheless. Father, we ask that you will be with us. We pray, Lord, be with your people today. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus who came to die for the sins of a people who didn't deserve it. And I pray for those who have not come to faith today, that they will place their faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray that they will come to saving faith, realizing that apart from you, we are sinful. We are rebellious and lost. We are criminal before you. But you brought Jesus in and canceled the record of debt by nailing it to the cross and giving us freedom in you. I pray, Lord, that they will see their sin, see their sinful hearts and come to you and repent and trust and be a new creation. Be with them, Lord, I beg. Only you can open the hearts of those you have called. Call people today, we beg.